This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhume.org. From KVPR in Fresno. On this week's The Other California, preserving the language of the Wakchumni, a small Native American tribe on the eastern side of the San Joaquin Valley. Her grandma passed away when she was, when my mom was seven years old. And, and that's why to me it amazes me how she remembered all of these words, you know, and to be able to put into a dictionary because she was just seven and remembering what it was like to miss school and work in the fields as a young kid. We were thirsty all together, we were hungry all together, we were tired all together. Everybody had to pull their weight, everybody. There were no slackers. It's all about passing down stories and knowledge as we head to the small rural town of Woodlake in Tulare County. I'm Alice Daniel and this is El otro California. I live California, California, California. California. I live in other California. It was 1972, and Olga and Manuel Jimenez were young college students. It was the height of the United Farm Workers movement to improve pay and living conditions for field workers in California and across the country. Strikes, boycotts, demonstrations. The efforts inspired Olga and Manuel, who had grown up in large farmworker families, to empower young people in their hometown of Woodlake. So they organized some high school kids. And we painted this big, beautiful mural in, in the barrio, you know, uh, which used to be a bar. That's Manuel. The outside of the bar had been a mess, covered in swear words and graffiti before they painted it. As the mural went up, the design came slowly into focus. It was a collage that included a painting of a red United Farmworkers flag with a black Aztec eagle in the center, as well as a quote, respecting the rights of others is peace, from the Mexican revolutionary and president, Benito Juarez. The then all-white city council did not like it. Cops were sent to stop the painters from completing the mural. They even delivered a cease and desist letter. Manuel still laughs about that. If you think about the late 60s, early 70s, <laughs> we were pretty rebellious. There's no way you're going to force us to do that. The couple got help from California Rural Legal Assistance. Within days, the matter was dropped. The mural stayed. Fifty years later, the bar has been converted to a house, the collage long painted over. But for Manuel and Olga, it was just the start of a now half-century-long effort to make their hometown a better, more productive place to live. Picture this. The sun is setting on a warm fall evening as live music floats through the air along with the aroma of Italian food served buffet-style. People fill their plates before sitting at tables under the darkening sky, a Peruvian band at the front of the lawn. Tiki torches cast light on a row of banana trees, their waxy red flowers caught in the glow. The San Joaquin Valley is known for dozens of types of fruits, peaches, plums, nectarines, oranges, pluots, apricots, cherries, but not bananas or papayas or mangoes, all of which seem to magically grow here at the Bravo Lake Botanical Garden, just a short walk from Woodlake's main street. 
And on this night, the people listening to music and laughing and talking are here to support the efforts of the couple who spearheaded this garden's existence, the same couple who painted that mural 50 years ago, Olga and Manuel Jimenez. Olga and Manuel are so great. That's Sandy Allen, who is at this pre-pandemic annual fundraiser because she loves the wonderland they've created here full of 4,000 rosebushes, zinnias, and sunflowers, and about 250 varieties of fruit trees. You walk along, oh, here, try this, try this piece of fruit, try this, you know, whatever it might be in season at the time. Before you know it, you have no cares or worries. Walter Martinez brought his two young sons. He tells me he's one of hundreds of former kids who have volunteered with Olga and Manuel's grassroots organization, Woodlake Pride. He's in his mid-30s now, but was 12 when he started volunteering. We turned the soil, planted the, uh, the seeds in the trays, and then transplanted into the ground. We set up the irrigations. We would run fertilizer and stuff through the irrigations. I mean, harvest, everything. And for years, he and others helped transform the botanical garden from a once bare, long stretch of land bought by the City with a Rails to Trails grant. It sits next to Bravo Lake, a small natural lake bordered by levees. I mean, we started off in a little lot, and then this became like a... 13-acre project that started from just bare ground and um, to see diversity, different crops, flowers. It's, it's something amazing. All of this in Woodlake, a town with no traffic lights and a population around 7,500. It taught me everything from the ground up for agriculture and it kept me out of trouble. I, thanks to Manuel and Olga, I, I am where I am right now. Many former volunteers, like Walter, go on to work in agriculture. He's now in ag tech with Tulare County. He says his sons are too young to volunteer in the garden, but he lets them play in the dirt at home. I, I, I turn my ground, I let them plant everything from scratch, and I let them water. So they have the experience and they love it. I first met Manuel and Olga a few years ago, before the pandemic, before the fundraiser with the Peruvian band. I've stayed in touch since, and at one point during the pandemic, I drove to Woodlake to watch them light luminaries in the garden for all of the people who had died from COVID-19 in Tulare County. Each week, the number increased, and every Saturday, the couple worked together to place more and more candles, at one point more than 800, along the main path. During that time, it was silent of human visitors, but Olga described the wildlife that had moved in. The raccoons, the killdeer, the fox. Once in a while, the coyote comes and cleans up all the rabbits. And there was more bird song. What you're hearing, these birds, they're grackles and they're babies. The couple have four adult children and four grandchildren. But this oasis, it's their baby. And when they're not planting rows of vegetables or offering a visitor a piece of fruit from the orchard, they still find a way for the garden to serve. Starting with the mural they painted a half century ago, everything Manuel and Olga do is ultimately for the kids. Manuel says the garden instills character and a work ethic. It's a place to learn skills and even get credit for high school community service hours. Kids grow up in in cliques and groups. 
And so uh, they don't get to meet other kids. And here, that's one thing that happens is that kids that are very quiet uh, or kids that are sort of left behind often, they find friends here. Ashley Ortega says she loves coming here on Saturdays. I don't know, I think it's like really beautiful here. I think this is the best garden I've ever seen. She tells me she likes deadheading the rose bushes best. It's much better than being bored at home. And I'd rather be outside than staying inside doing nothing. The garden is the teacher, Manuel says. One time, a farmer donated 60 truckloads of wood mulch. The only way to spread it throughout the garden was by using wheelbarrows. For months, through heat and then rain, kids joined in the shoveling and carting. It was exhausting. Some of the kids would ask, well, when, is it, when are we going to finish? And we tell them, look, this is just one phase of the gardens. We're, we're, it's never going to finish. So you have to enjoy the moment. Manuel says when he and Olga started planting gardens around Woodlake 40-some years ago, it was not a very attractive place. Typical rural town, mostly farm workers. And so what we started doing is planting gardens uh, throughout town and then uh, raising money to plant flowers through the downtown area. About 20 years ago, they began work on the botanical garden, which Manuel designed when he was still a UC small farm advisor. He's 71 and retired now, but his work focused on specialty crops. He even helped develop a blueberry industry for the valley. Olga says to have this kind of passion, you have to be a little on the obsessive side. Manuel and I go to bed thinking, where are we working at tomorrow morning in the garden? And it's one mile. You can, you can go uh, east, you can go west, you can just start in the middle. You just have to start somewhere, she says. Woodlake is nestled in the citrus belt that lines the eastern side of the valley. Whenever I drive here from Fresno, I marvel at the orchards of bright oranges and mandarins that stretch for miles toward the Sierra Nevada foothills. A packing plant for Sunkist is just west of the main street, where buildings have Western-style fronts and some businesses sell fertilizer and feed. Even the solar-powered handmade water features at the Botanical Garden are a nod to farm labor. Water flows over artifacts, inverted disks once used to till soil, antique picking buckets, grape clippers, orange clippers, lemon clippers— Woodlake is an ag town through and through, and in the past five years, it's been at the forefront of embracing a new crop. There's our mimosa. Okay. It smells pretty floral. KVPR reporter Carrie Klein is catching a whiff of one company's flagship products. A hint, it's not wine. It'll go from, from floral to some of them that are like, whoa. What do you smell in this one when you smell it? Uh, this one, for me, smells like, if you could imagine, uh, a purple tangerine. I don't know if you can imagine a purple tangerine, but I cannot. Especially since what Jose Rivas is holding, it's one of the many oils he extracted from marijuana. Uh, we'll start with kind of our lighter, fruitier smelling ones, and we'll work our way all the way down into that really stinky, skunky smell. Inside Jose's unassuming office building, I see a chemistry lab of every cannabis connoisseur's dreams. 
bubbling evaporators, storage tanks of liquid nitrogen, and trays and trays of drying marijuana buds. You can see we have about 200 pounds in here right now. Jose is the CEO of a company called Premium Extracts, and they squeeze, distill, and steam everything they can from the flower. Essentially what we've developed here is a methodology to isolate the components and the molecules of the cannabis plant, which are responsible for its taste, its flavor, and all the nuanced aroma that comes from each individual cannabis strain. In one room, I see jars full of nearly pure THC, thick and oozing like tree sap. In another, freezers packed with vials of sloshing yellow and orange oils. Um, Hey, Pat, can you go grab us some gloves? Using a teeny glass dropper, it's these oils, called terpenes, that Jose and I are smell testing. Have you ever smelled refined terpenes before? Nope. Definitely not. It's going to be a cool experience. Terpenes are kind of like essential oils. They add flavor and natural fragrance to products without any THC or CBD. Some are fruity, like pineapple Pez and banana OG. Because we have some that are, are heavy, like I would describe as like a far waft of burning sugar and skunk. The language may be goofy, but Jose isn't messing around. His company has patented their terpene extraction process, and each chapstick-sized vial of oil is worth a few thousand dollars. Jose says they're used in high-end vaporizer pens. Of course, everybody enjoys the euphoric feeling associated with with recreational cannabis. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's much more to this plant than just that, uh, and that's what we're trying to, uh, to show the world. High-end is a theme throughout Woodlake's cannabis world. Down the street, Wayne Bishop shows me a warehouse with an upscale barn aesthetic. Think hardwood floors, farm equipment, and decorative mason jars full of marijuana buds. Hopefully even this this year we'll get an on-site consumption permit. So we're trying to make this into like a winery experience. I was just going to say, you could do weddings in here. That's what we're trying to, that's, that's what we're going for. But for now, his cash flow comes from the plants themselves. The company's called Seven Points for the shape of the leaves, and it's a cultivator. So this room here will actually be harvested next week. 16,000 plants grow in vast rooms blazing with artificial sunlight. Out of the 16,000 plants, which includes a nursery, we produce somewhere between 100 and 150 pounds of flour a week. They're also a regional delivery service. Whatever stereotypes you associate with illicit weed, these companies are trying to shake them. The facilities I see are clean and professional, and they prefer the term cannabis. They view themselves almost like winemakers, only instead of Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, they deal in Cherry AK-47 and Obama Kush. We're hoping to actually get to very much like the wine industry where people will join our club and every quarter we'll send you this really cool wood crate with flour in it and maybe some hand-blown pipes, uh, maybe some of our edibles and just, you know, just kind of a nice little uh, package to show up on your door. These are some of the seven cannabis businesses currently in Woodlake. The city was the first in the valley to embrace cannabis back in 2017. In the big city of Fresno, it would take four more years to approve its first dispensaries. So how did this recreational revolution happen in Woodlake, a town of just one fast food chain and, as we've said, zero stoplights? some very opportunistic city employees. So right now we're at Castle Rock Park, which is... That's Jason um, Waters, Woodlake's community development director. He's showing me the jungle gyms and baseball diamonds at the many parks that have benefited from a cannabis sales tax. 
Jason co-wrote the city's new ordinances, despite the fact that he says he's never been a pot smoker. And have you, if I could ask, have you gone and tried anything now that this has all become legal? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. So still, still pretty straight-laced when it comes to that. <laughs> it's very unusual, I think, especially here in California. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. He says as soon as California voters legalized recreational cannabis in 2016, the city saw an opportunity. Leaders introduced a 5% sales tax on all cannabis products. They also put a limit on dispensaries, only two at a time, while mandating employee background checks and round-the-clock video surveillance. You really need an extensive set of rules, which we, that was really the first step, the first thing that we did. The sales tax was approved by two-thirds of voters, but not everyone is happy. Many residents feel conflicted about this legal drug business. Others worry about being inundated by out-of-towners. Here we have all our gummies. They're $10 a pack. And, and people do flock from all over. Managers of Valley Pure, the Valley's first recreational dispensary, say hundreds of people come in each day. Sales associate Monica Fields, also known as a bud tender, points me to brightly lit shelves full of vape pens, vacuum-sealed flour, and a plethora of edibles. Yes, pretzels, brownies, cookies, I mean, you name it, we probably got it. Assistant manager Tommy Fields says they've got niche items, too. Uh, I think we got the suppositories. Those came in. What's the difference in how that, like, how how that makes you feel? Um, I guess why would somebody use a suppository if they could ingest some other way? From what I've heard uh, from a friend that his wife used it for her menstrual cramps and it went away. It completely killed her period symptoms. So it's more for more for the ladies then. More, I yeah, I I would hope it's more for the ladies. <laughs> for the record, CBD suppositories are marketed to everyone. The afternoon I'm there, I meet a 20-something couple stocking up for a vacation and Jared Rawson, a vet who injured his back in the Air Force. Unfortunately, you know, the the hospitals just kind of want to give you all the pain meds and it doesn't, it's not good. This is a much better route. He says he can't believe it took so long to legalize recreational cannabis when the alternative was the unregulated black market. And although the rest of the valley has been slow to catch up, He's happy Woodlake, at least, was ready for the transition. For The Other California, I'm Carrie Klein in Woodlake. Transitions. Changes. It's what towns go through as they adapt to new industries, new people. It got me wondering what it would be like to grow up here, where change happens, but often at a slower, and some might argue better, pace. So shortly before the pandemic, I stopped by to talk to a senior class at Wood Lake High School, and I asked them to describe their town. At first, they threw out words like cows, manure, dairy farms, boring, nothing to do. And then someone mentioned sequoias. The, um, the largest trees in the world, right? Right. Woodlake is about a 20-mile meandering drive from the entrance to Sequoia National Park, where some of the giant sequoia trees are 3,000 years old. In fact, the park is just due east of the town. If you had decent hiking boots and a good compass, you could just start walking from here and eventually you would run into these monarchs, trees that don't grow anywhere else on Earth. But even from Woodlake, the students say, the view on a clear day is picturesque. 
are able to see the sunrise go over that and it's gorgeous because there's golden rays mixed with all the snow that's on top of the mountains mixed with some of the mountains that have the ice melted and it's green so it's a myriad of beautiful different colors that I get to experience each day. That's Rogelio Chavez. He grew up the youngest of seven kids in a farm worker family. Another student... My name is Skylar Rodriguez. ...said growing up in a small town is like having a giant family. Like growing up, we're all annoyed because everybody knows our business. Like you go do something you're not supposed to and your parents find out about it because someone saw you doing it. So like we all hate that idea, but like knowing that you have a town full of people who care about you and know where you are at all times is kind of cool. But some things are changing. Skylar used to recognize everyone's car on the main street. And then now that the weed community, like community has come to Woodlake, it's not like that anymore. Everybody, like you don't know all the cars anymore. People on the street aren't always recognizable either, Rogelio said. And like that might be like, common for bigger cities, but for Woodlake, it's odd to see people that are usually not around here because we don't get a lot of tourists, per se. But tourists do come to Sequoia National Park, and it's worth noting here that TripAdvisor and Parks and Travel magazine both list the Bravo Lake Botanical Garden as a place to visit if you're nearby. Rogelio is now a college student at UC Berkeley, but when he was still in Woodlake, I asked him to sit down with Olga Jimenez to find out more about what her childhood was like working in the fields with her 13 siblings. Olga starts off the conversation recalling just how challenging the work was. We basically grew up fast. We did not have a childhood. We were very responsible since day one. We were thirsty altogether, we were hungry altogether, we were tired altogether. Everybody had to pull their weight. Everybody, there were no slackers. If you were a slacker, you stood out like a sore thumb. As someone who wasn't necessarily exposed to this type of labor-intensive work until I was a bit older, I can't imagine how that must have been, working in something so intense at that young age. When we were picking grapes, and school would start, and the bus would pass by. We were in Biola, and the bus would pass by. We were frightened. We would hide, because the bus meant authority. The bus meant school was in session. The bus meant you're in trouble. So we were very scared kids growing up. Now, why exactly were you so afraid by these authoritative figures during your childhood? Because um, child labor laws had come into existence, and the farmer was aware of this, and he told us, as his workers, he let us know that he was jeopardizing because he was letting us work. And child labor laws said, you must go to school, and you must be a certain age to work. Uh, you had to be like 16. We started working when we were like six. Did you have the choice of, oh, I'm gonna wait to work until I'm 16, or was that a given? Uh, we had no option. It was, it was starve or live, and we chose to live. So we had to break the law many, many times. 
Yeah, were you ever wishing that you weren't living that lifestyle and wishing that you were able to just have that same similar experience that students who were going to school were? Actually, at that time, very few Mexican kids graduated from eighth grade. Very few Mexican kids graduated from high school. I made it my goal to graduate from eighth grade. I made it my goal to graduate from high school. I was self-motivated. My parents didn't know the difference between an A and an F. It was not a concern. When you have to put food on the table, your children's grades are not a concern. I, I need to backtrack a little bit. When I came to California, I was almost 10 years old. And that is the first time I went to school. So by the time I graduated from eighth grade, I was 16. By the time I graduated from high school, I was 20. And since I didn't know anybody else's ages, because we were like horses with those eye blinders, you know. We, we went to work, we went to school. That was our routine. School was a vacation from work. So we worked on weekends, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday we went to school. And I couldn't understand when kids hated school. I didn't understand them. I definitely, I can't imagine myself um, being put in those scenarios. And I really, I realize now how much, well, I realized ever since, um, you know, really becoming passionate about my agricultural program at school and becoming self-aware about this amazing agricultural community that I've grown up with. Um, I realized how much work and labor that I've been taking advantage, just the process of getting all that food to my plate is something that is so intricate and delicate. And there's so many people that put all their lives effort into that just so that we're able to take one bite. We didn't grow up with um, a house with a separate bedroom for everybody. We grew up like six sisters in one bed. We grew up uh, four brothers in the other bed and four other brothers in the other bed. So when my granddaughter didn't keep her bedroom up, I left her a note. And I said, I shared my room with six sisters, and it never looked trashy like yours. And I said to her, you are, you are very blessed and lucky to have your own room and not have to share anything with anybody. I definitely could relate to that. I am the youngest of seven siblings. So yeah, like you said earlier, Woodlake is accustomed to very big families. Yes. And um, do you think that that big family atmosphere was able to help you and motivate you go through all of that, such that grueling labor at that age? I think because we were all together and we were all a family. We were one unit. There was no separation. We all fit in the car or we didn't fit. There was no seat belts. And um, carried our lunch and carried our water for the day. And there was one thing my father was adamant about, and that was that we were a hat. And if we didn't have a hat, he'd make one out of paper or something. But we must wear a hat because to protect ourselves from the sun. And we had to have our water. And we, we had breaks. My father would say, break time. My father learned a few English words, ham and eggs, fill her up, break time. Those were the phrases my father learned in English. And we carried a radio. So that, that music, it wasn't, my father would listen to Spanish 
And then he would say, okay, it's your turn. So we would switch to English. So listening to music out in the vineyards or out in the olive trees or in the orange trees, that was our enjoyment. That was it. Well, thank you so much, Olga. This has been such an amazing learning experience. I've definitely had my eyes opened and I'm so glad I was able to meet such a kind and I could tell such a genuine heart and someone who has such a care for agriculture and our community. Thank you so much for having me. That was Rogelio Chavez talking to Olga Jimenez. Olga and Manuel Jimenez also went to Woodlake High School. It was in the late 60s. At the same time, another Woodlake native, Jennifer Malone, was at the school. It seems they all still have something in common, making sure the next generation remembers. I meet Jennifer at a college campus event in Fresno, where she's teaching students about the Wakchumni culture. Right now, she's saying a prayer in Wakchumni. She gives thanks for the good people here and asks that the language survive. There are about 200 Wakchumni in and around Tulare County. They're part of the broader Yokut group of tribes native to Central California. Jennifer's mom, Marie Wilcox, was at one time the last fluent speaker of Wakchumni. But she taught relatives the language and for years pecked away at a computer one letter at a time to write a Wakchumni dictionary. Her grandma passed away when she was when my mom was seven years old and and that's why to me it amazes me how she remembered all of these words, you know, and to be able to put into a dictionary because she was just seven. Yeah, me too. In 2014, the New York Times published a short documentary about Jennifer's mother, who lived in an old wooden house on a country road just outside of Woodlake. My name is uh, Marie Wilcox. My grandmother delivered me Thanksgiving Day on November 24th, 1933. The documentary is called Who Speaks Wakchumni? We only had a little one-room house. Grandpa and Grandma always spoke our language, Wakchumni. Marie also recorded folk tales in Wakchumni. The one she's sharing in the documentary now describes how humans got their hands from lizards. Preserving stories like this is now in Jennifer's hands. She's teaching Wakchumni to an apprentice through the nonprofit Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival. She says she mostly goes by her English name, but she does have a name in Wakchumni. My Indian name is Hayalik, Hayalik, and that means um, like a summer is Hayal. So my great-grandma named me Hayalik because that means summer. I was born July 31st. She can't remember where the name Jennifer even came from. Her mom mainly called her Hayalik. Especially when she wanted to get my attention. Hi, Alec, she would say. <laughs> when I was in trouble, I guess. <laughs> Keeping a language alive is challenging, and it's like that with other traditions, Jennifer says, like basket weaving, something she's done for years. This one here is one that I made for my mom, and um, 
She used it for her popcorn and her chips. And Many of the elders who taught the craft have died, she says. And natural materials like white root sedge, redbud, and deer grass are getting harder to find, especially without pesticides. The weavers split the redbud shoots with their teeth. Put it in my mouth when I size it. I put it in, I, I size it down or split it. And so we don't, can't use anything that's been poisoned. Jennifer points out a walnut dice game her granddaughter is teaching to interested students. It has a score sheet there, the one who gets all the sticks. Another student approaches Jennifer and asks how she plans to keep her culture alive. How do you keep that alive, like your culture? Jennifer nods to her grandchild. With her every day, and if she don't learn something today, then I pound her on the head. <laughs> she gestures to a sign in front of her with some words in what chumney on it. And that means that we are still here. Before we leave Woodlake, let's stop in at Dora's one of the few restaurants in town. You'll see. Here's KVPR reporter Madi Bolaños. Dora Orozco takes a sip of fireball cinnamon whiskey, sets the glass down, and starts belting out a song. She's standing on the small towel stage inside her Mexican restaurant, and the customers are captivated. The song... Ya lo sé, by Jenny Rivera. At Dora's restaurant, Friday night is karaoke night and has been for the past 20 years, except during the pandemic. But Dora doesn't just sing karaoke in her restaurant. She's sung in over 15 states across the country, opening shows for legendary Mexican singers like Pepe Aguilar. She was even good friends with Mexican singer and songwriter Juan Gabriel. He was the one who told her to start singing in her restaurant. Él me dijo, "Tú cantas en tu restaurant?" Y digo, "No, no canto." ¿Por qué no? Porque está chiquito. He said, "You need to showcase your talent." So she began doing karaoke. And she invites her customers to sing karaoke too. A woman named Gloria gets up to sing La Reina es el Rey by Beatriz Adrián. Dora tells me she was 13 when she moved here from a small town in Michoacán in 1977. She says it was totally different from the life she knew back in Mexico. Her mom was a single mother of three kids, and the older two worked in the fields picking oranges. So for us, we didn't know nothing about vacations or nothing like that. It was just, okay, no school, work. Even weekends, you know, Saturdays, Sundays, go to work. Dora says she liked working in the fields, but she had a bigger passion, singing. When she turned 16, she started performing at Mexican rodeos in the area. She says her mom did not approve. My mom didn't like it because she said it was dangerous. There's a lot of drugs there. There's this and that. And I go, Mom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing my singing career. And this is what I want to do. Really, I, I was so secure of what I wanted. She'd perform at events, even singing on local radio stations. 
After graduating high school, she got a job working at a packing house with her mom, but eventually she decided to go back to Mexico to sing. Before she left, she noticed a restaurant for sale. She wanted to buy it, but not because she loved to cook. It's because my mom knew how to, and she worked at uh, different uh, restaurants in Mexico. So I said, well, she has the, she has the taste and the skill. And that's why I, I thought about doing something like that, you know, that we can work together. The owner and Dora made a verbal agreement. She would go back to Mexico and sing, make enough money to buy the restaurant, and return to Wood Lake. At the age of 20, Dora became a businesswoman. Dora sings another song for the crowd at her restaurant. The turnout is better than she's had since the start of the pandemic. La verdad, yo ya quería cerrar el negocio. La verdad. She was actually ready to close the restaurant after the first few months of the pandemic. But her family and friends convinced her to stick it out. And now... Right now it is, it is good. It is good. No complaints about nothing. And she's even performing shows in her hometown in Michoacán, Mexico. But she says she still has music aspirations. Siento que no llegué a donde quería llegar. En la cantada, en, en como, como, como intérprete. She says she doesn't feel like she's accomplished what she set out to do with her music career. She'd like to be the next Paquita La del Barrio, a Mexican singer who performed at her own nightclub in Mexico City. For the other California, I'm Adi Bolaños. This episode was produced by me, Alice Daniel, mixing and sound design by Rob Spate, with editorial help from Polly Stryker, web support from Alex Burke, technical support from Don Weaver. Joe Moore is our president and general manager. Special thanks to the KVPR news team, Madi Bolaño, Sarith Hawk, Carrie Klein, and Kathleen Schock, and two musicians, Omar Nuray and Jim Karagosian. You've been listening to The Other California.